You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. Let me read. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, He said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So before I begin to preach further um, through this text, I kind of want to let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, or just kind of maybe even frame our conversation a little bit moving forward for you. The next couple of weeks, including this week, just by default of the way that the, uh, we land in the text and by default of the preaching series, the way that it lays out, what we're going to be discussing is a great big theological word called eschatology. Some of you may go, Eska what? Did you sneeze on stage? No, eschatology is a theological word that simply means the end. The end times. Others would refer to it as the return of Christ. Eschatology encompasses these concepts of what the end of the world will look like, what will happen, as well as the return of Christ in the midst of that. And what I want to be, uh, I think, sensitive to in the midst of tackling this topic is I want to be sensitive to the fact that within the church today, there are, there are varying degrees and views of what the end of the world would look like and how the return of Christ is going to happen. So I want to be sensitive to those 
things. And I want to be sensitive also to the fear that sometimes gets aroused in us when we start thinking about the end of the world. And so to that end, what, what I've done is I've chosen two um, um, quotes from, from some scholars and commentators that I commonly study when it comes to um, preaching. And my first quote from, from this one scholar goes like this. So listen to this. The study of this text requires a proper humility and a willingness to admit that we do not have all the answers. It is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head and not unnaturally his head explodes. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. And so the reality about this kind of text, as we think about the end times, as we think about the end of the world, as we think about the return of Christ and the things that Jesus said about these things, is that a lot of questions get aroused when we begin to study this topic. Some people, in an attempt to kind of answer those questions about the end times, about Christ's return, wind up um, approaching the scriptures with kind of a copy, cut, paste mode of interpretation whereby they take little bits and pieces of proof text, they lift it out of the immediate context of the scripture, and they wind up trying to then supplant it or implant it into another section of text that was written thousands of years earlier or hundreds of years later, and then in the process wind up destroying the original meaning of the text in the first place. So that's kind of one way of interpreting the text that is pretty common, I think, in the church today and, and, and in our day. And then I think another, and what I would say is probably more of a, uh, a more faithful way of interpreting Jesus' words here is what I think is referred to to a historical grammatical um, interpretation method. Some of you are looking at me with glazed over eyes, like, seriously, this is what you're going to preach tonight? Now, I, I want to do this uh, purposely to lay some foundation. Okay? I want to do this purposely to lay some foundation. A historical grammatical approach to interpreting Scripture makes an awful lot of sense if you think about those two words for just a minute. Historical, grammatical. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the text and we're going to try to draw out some of the historicity, historicity, there's a better word, some of the historicity, the historical nature of the text. What's being said? Who's talking? Who are they talking to? What's the context of what's taking place in the culture when these things are actually being said? This is a historical analysis of the text of what Jesus is saying and what Luke is writing to us. It's very important for us to begin to understand some of those things before we lift that text out and then supplant it in our own construct and begin thinking that because we have some sort of Americanized view of what's happening, that must be right. America's coming to an end because Trump or Hillary gets into the White House, right? Follow me? 
This is what we have a tendency to do. And I want to guard against that and take a historical and grammatical approach. So grammatical, I know some of you are feeling like, what, am I back in school again? Like I'm a fourth grader or what? No, it's, in, it's important when we approach the text of Scripture to not only look at the, the historicity of what's taking place there, but to also take a look at the grammar and the way that the sentences are constructed. The words that are used. Text is useless without context. You hear me? Text is useless without context. You can proof text your funny ideas all day long, but when you take it out of the context of the original speaker and the original hearer, you do damage and destruction to what God wants to say to us. And so I lay all of that out for us to simply say to you that we want to take seriously what God's word says. I want to approach this from what I believe to be a biblically faithful and pastoral approach, which leads me to a second quote from another scholar who says this. He says, Jesus was not interested in giving date-setting details, but in encouraging his own to be steadfast and faithful until he returns, Jesus spoke pastorally. This is what Jesus is doing in this passage. He is speaking pastorally to his followers. Put yourself in that context, that place and that time. The disciples are asking a really interesting question that all of us will ask at times. Hey, what does the end of the world look like? What's going to happen? Can you help me so that I know none of us want to be that guy on the street corner and the world ends and we're like, oh, crap. Actually, I don't think you'd be standing on a street corner saying, oh, crap, the world ended anyways. But you get the picture, right? None of us wants to be that guy who is uninformed. And so we want to be informed. And so we ask this question just like the disciples. It is the question that we would ask just like them. I don't want to try to get all of heaven into our heads, as the one scholar said. I don't want to do that just by merely filling our minds full of more information and more knowledge. What I actually want to do is to help get our heads into heaven and get our eyes and our hearts locked on Jesus so that we might be refreshed by the hope of heaven who is Christ. That's what I want to do tonight is get our heads in heaven and get your eyes focused and locked on Christ so that your hearts might be encouraged, so that your hearts might be refreshed in Christ who is the hope of heaven. I want to approach this passage in a way that gives us sound pastoral instruction, not just advice or opinions. Listen, you can go watch Fox News or CNN if you want some opinions. The pulpit was not meant for opinions. The pulpit was meant to preach God's word boldly and faithfully so that hearers could hear the word of God become saved and challenged in their salvation. And so my hope and my desire tonight from the pulpit is to preach a word to you that is pastoral. That gives you pastoral encouragement and instruction from the very words of Jesus. This is something we should take seriously, right? This is something that every preacher should take seriously. Something that every hearer should take seriously as well. My hope is that 
that all of us would receive instruction from Jesus himself. I'm not Jesus. <laughs> I'm not him. I'm just a spokesperson. But there is a high responsibility for each of us tonight, both on the speaker and the hearer, to receive that instruction and to be faithful in that instruction. So I want to give that instruction in regards to how we can live faithfully as followers of Christ in the midst in the midst of a chaotic world. In the light of the chaotic times that we find ourselves in. That's what I want to speak into. And in fact, that's the theme and the title of tonight's message. The chaos before the end. Chaos before the end. I want you to think of the best action movie you've ever seen. The cool thing about action movies is that towards the end of every good action movie, there's actually a sequence of heightened or intensified activity and actions meant to get your attention, right? The bullets are whizzing by. The cars are exploding. Buildings are falling down. The, uh, the bad guys are intensifying their efforts to kill the good guys. The good guy usually dies somehow and then miraculously comes back to life over the top of the counter with an AK or an Uzi, right? That's the good guy. The bad guy usually goes through some of the same metamorphosis where they like die horribly, like gets gutted with something and then somehow comes back to life long enough from his dead posture to pull off like one last nearly fatal shot and then gets his brains splattered all over the place. And you guys are like, really? R-rated stuff in the pulpit? Seriously? Point being, we enjoy these sequences of action movies simply because it's the apex of the story, right? It's that moment when everything you've been studying or learning in this movie is coming to a head and you are riveted. That's what's taking place in the text as we read it anyways. It's, it's placed so well. Luke, when he wrote this, wrote it. So the guy's a genius, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, as a man who was imperfect, yet God's Spirit who is perfect writes these things through him in a space and time when Jesus is, is walking through the final week of his life. Everything we say in the Gospel of Luke leads us nearly to this point, right? cross is the actual apex and just like any good action movie that you or i would watch all of this action-packed drama this chaos happens right in that sequence at the end the climax of the movie right before the good guy wins everything is set right with the world and the good guy hops on his harley and flies off in the distance in peace right with his bride behind him on the bike or a four-wheel drive truck or boat or whatever or a race car if you're watching those fantastic five movies or whatever they're called i got that way wrong that's what this is like that's what jesus is describing what he's describing is the chaos before the end because before the end comes there must be chaos that's really the principle threaded all throughout this text Jesus is simply pastoring his disciples by outlining what the chaos before the end will actually look like. And then in doing so, what he does is he gives them pointers for living in the midst of the chaos in such a way that will keep their heads in heaven and their eyes focused on Christ, who is the hope of heaven. 
So my plan is to outline these following five points of chaos from our text. Don't feel like you have to keep up in my short summary. If you're one of those people that geek out like I do over outlines and you've got your pen in your hand and you've got your notebook or your Twitter or whatever you've got open. Number one, we're going to look at the chaos of the destruction of religious freedom. Number two, we'll look at the, the chaos of false messiahs. Number three, we'll look at the chaos of war. Number four, we'll look at the chaos of natural disaster. And then number five, we'll land on number five, the chaos of persecution. And as we examine those elements of chaos, my hope is that you catch a fresh picture of Christ. And that when you leave here tonight, that you are refreshed and given an encouragement to hope in Him. So number one, the chaos of the destruction of religious freedom. Looking at verses 5 through 6. As we enter into the front gate of this text, so to speak, what Jesus is doing is we find Him exiting the temple. If you compare Luke 21 verses 5 through 6 with Matthew 24 verse 1 and Mark 13 1, these are the synoptic gospels. Meaning that when you read these three gospels side by side, they are very, very similar. And at times, at times, word for word, the same. And as he exits the temple, some of his disciples, Luke tells us, were speaking of the temple, how it is adorned with noble stones and offerings. And he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. I think about the original hearers of these words. And to the original hearers of these words, what Jesus says here would have been absolutely shocking. This would have been absolutely stunning. This would have been completely sensational for him to say to them. Instead of entering into like this conversation of, of ooing and on over how beautiful this physical structure called the temple the city of Jerusalem was, instead of doing that, Jesus uses this moment as an opportunity to turn his disciples' attention to the truth that nothing on this earth is meant to last forever. There's a picture that you and I could get out of this. Is there's, there's nothing that you and I could build on this earth that will last forever. We, we have no hope of anything that we construct here on earth. All the way from buildings to relationships to physical constructs to political constructs and systems. None of that's going to last forever. It will all be wiped away someday. It will all pass away. It will all be brought to ruin. We are not invincible and neither are the kingdoms that we seek to build. I want you to think about the temple that Jesus is walking out of with his disciples. And just give you a couple of facts, a couple of interesting things to stick into your imagination. You draw this picture of the temple in your mind and what it is is these massive whitewashed stone walls. 
massive, built out of these huge bricks of white stone that from, from, as, as cubes from, from end to end were bigger than some really big guys like me, okay? These stones that they used to build the temple out of were massive and, and they were brilliantly white. That from a, from, from a long distance, the walls of the temple would just catch your eye. Huge pillars, long flowing steps. And they even say that there was a uh, that there was a, some sort of a um, uh, a formation, this thing that was carved, and it was hanging on or in the temple, and it, it was a, it was in the form of, of a of a huge cluster of grapes. This massive structural piece that was bigger than a man as well. The, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the roof of, of the temple was made out of pure gold, which they had taken and melted down into these flat um, um, golden shingles. Now take this big, majestic-looking temple and put it right on top of a 150-foot-tall mountain right near the city and inside the city. That's where this temple was located. And so that if you were a visitor and you were coming into Jerusalem, the first thing you would see, the first thing that the sun would bounce off of and grab your attention would be that temple. On top of all this, the temple itself had been under a remodel process and project, catch this, for nearly 50 years. 50 years. You think, think of a remodel, think of your own home just for a minute. Right? If it took you 50 years to remodel your home, how much money and resource you would have dumped into that? Think of how much pride you would take into your home if you took 50 years to remodel it after all those resources being dumped into it. Think about the pride you would have in your home in those moments. Now, here enters Jesus. And rather than ooing and awing over our great physical construct that we built, Jesus is like, hey, it's all going to get taken away someday. It's all going to go away. Yeah, there's no hope there. There's, there's no hope there. That's the point he's trying to make. Like for the Jewish nation, that temple was this massive symbol of their religious freedom. And Jesus is saying, Hey, watch out for the chaos of the destruction of the religious freedom. Watch out for that. Because at some point here, what Jesus is doing is he's speaking prophetically about most likely what's going to happen in like 37 to 40 years later when the Romans come in and lay complete waste to that temple. Jesus speaking prophetically. It's almost as though he's dropping this bomb in their midst. Hey, by the way, coming up pretty soon, this is all gonna get destroyed. He's simply speaking pastorally as he explains that as the end of the world draws near, believers should expect, we should expect to experience the chaos of the destruction of our religious freedoms. But... But in the midst of that chaos, 
In the midst of the chaos of, of the destruction of religious freedoms, we got to get our heads into heaven, right? Got to get our, our heads and our minds off of the things of this earth and get our heads into heaven and get our hearts focused on Christ who is our hope. That's the message of this text for us. Second thing we see in this passage is uh, what I would call the chaos of false messiahs, verses 7 through 8. After Jesus drops this kind of this major fantastical uh, prophetic bomb in regards to the coming destruction of the temple and the destruction of this little bit of religious freedom that his hearers were experiencing, his, his disciples asked a really good question. They asked him, teacher, when will these things be? The cool thing is that but by them even just asking this question just shows that they believe what he's saying to be true. When will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he says, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. In other words, there will be false messiahs. There will be false teachers. There will be false prophets. There will be wolves that will come in among the flock and seek to destroy the flock and draw the flock, the church, away from the fellowship of Christ and the message of the gospel. So in the midst of this, Jesus instructs his disciples not to be led astray and not to go after them. How will you know, though? How will you know who's false, who's true? How will you know who a a wolf is and and a sheep actually is? How will you know who a false teacher is and who isn't a false teacher? How do you know which, which, which pastors to watch on TV or what church to become part of? How will you know which books to read and which ones to reject? How will you know? A guy that I listen to on the radio quite often, uh, known as the Bible Answer Man. There's some things he says that I disagree with and and don't take in wholeheartedly. But one thing that I, when I first started coming to the Lord, I remember my dad saying, Hey, now that you're beginning to follow Jesus, you need to listen to this guy every day for a while and just get some of what he's saying into your head. And one of the things that that, uh, Hank would always say is this. He would say, if you want to know what a counterfeit is, Don't worry your life about figuring out who the counterfeit is. Get your eyes and your heart focused so much on he who is Christ that when a counterfeit looms on a horizon, you would know it instantaneously. Knowing who the wolves are, knowing who false prophets are, knowing who false teachers are, doesn't mean that you and I have got to go out tomorrow and start, start like uh, background researching all of these heretical teachings and false prophets and all that. We don't necessarily need to do that because to do that would take our eyes and our focus off of Christ himself. All we need to do is get our heads in the clouds of heaven and get our eyes on Jesus so that when a counterfeit or a false teacher or a false prophet or a wolf, for that matter, looms on the horizon, you and I can immediately say, wolf, false prophet, false teacher, they ain't listening. 
get our heads in heaven and our minds focused, our eyesight set on Christ. And there, there have been many false messiahs. Many false messiahs. In fact, in the time that Jesus was saying this, most Jewish historians, Josephus being one of the greatest of them, wrote about many, named them, named them. Can you imagine if we started putting a, 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 a name list out of people that we knew to be false messiahs, false prophets, false teachers, and wolves? And this was common practice. We'll see later that this is common practice even in the scriptures. been many, many in our day that have sought to lead God's people astray. You might recognize some of these names. Jim Jones, David Koresh, Harold Camping. <laughs> Dude went on the internet and like listed dates that Jesus was coming back. And I mean, just, it just never happened. That's, we're, we're still here. <laughs> these guys are 20th century false messiahs. I mean, in our day and age, I, I, I would humbly submit this to you humbly submit and if we disagree it's okay this is the area right now that we can agree to disagree on but i would humbly submit to you that tim LaHaye has left behind series of books are pretty full of heresy i just i i have a friend of mine who's like why do you have that set of books in your office i'm like well i have a hard time throwing away books and he's like i don't have a hard time throwing away heresy burn them i'm like well ah there are many well-knowing, believing brothers and sisters in Christ who love that series. And I don't need to spend time arguing with you about it. But, but he, that would be one. There's, there's, there's another guy um, um, who wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. The guy's name is Hal Lindsey. You read that book, and, and if you actually spend some time just studying it really carefully, you'll find that what he's doing is just date stamping and Bible coding everything. And it's like, seriously? Like, uh, Proof texting. Uh, it's basically what, what a lot of people have referred to as uh, common newspaper theology. What they're doing is they're basically taking the newspapers and laying them open on the counter and then taking the Bible and opening it and trying to interpret everything that's happening today in light of the scripture. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. Like the Bible was not written specifically to the American culture so that we could then say, oh, the next president is going to be the Antichrist. That was not what Jesus had in mind when he said this stuff to his disciples. Okay, it does have some application to us. does have some good instruction for us to follow. Um, but I, I would just submit to you that if you would get your heads in heaven and get your eyesight on Jesus, you would know counterfeits when they loom on the horizon. Broader context of Scripture. I'm going to kind of blast through these. Man, the broader context of Scripture gives uh, some of the same warnings to us. Um, very similar to what Jesus gives us here. In fact, Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, Mark 13, 5 and 6, they read nearly word for word exactly the same as what we're reading here in Luke. That tells me that the Holy Spirit inspired authors to write word for word the same on this one single topic tells me that God thinks this is pretty important for us to pay attention to. <clears throat> Second Peter 2, 1-3 tells us that there will be false teachers among you. 1 John 2, 18-19 tells us, As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 
1 John, again in chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, tells us, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Gone into the world. Paul says in Acts 20, 29 through 30, says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men. From your own selves will arise men. People that you trust. People that you love. People that you did life with will arise from among you, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul also said in 2 Timothy 4, 14-15, he says this. He says, Alexander the coppersmith. So there's the Apostle Paul naming someone who was once in his fellowship. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And the big idea that I want to bring home by, by showing us the ripple effect of context out through Scripture is that this is a general theme that we will face the chaos of false messiahs, false prophets, false teachers, and wolves. This is a part of the end, but it comes before the end. It's the big idea. Before the end comes, before Christ returns, we will experience the chaos of false messiahs. And they, and they should not lead us astray. We should not be led astray. We should not follow after them. And the way that you and I protect and guard ourselves from following after them is by keeping our heads in heaven and our eyes and our hearts focused and locked on Jesus, who is the hope of heaven. The problem for us oftentimes is that we flat out, if I'll be honest with you, just get bored with Jesus. We just get bored with Jesus. We, we, we stop finding our hope in Him and we wind up looking to other things, other people to find hope in. A uh, third thing that I notice in, the, in our text is the chaos of war, verses 9 through 10. Chaos of war. As if the chaos of the destruction of religious freedom isn't enough for us. As if the chaos of, uh, of false messiahs isn't enough to squash our hope in the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus continues to basically drill his hearers with this truth that before the end comes and he returns, there will be much chaos. And he says it this way now. He says, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Just from a mere historical standpoint, as Jesus says this, the majority of the world and the people that were hearing what he was saying, they were already hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Nations were already rising against nations. If they would have had a newspaper in that day, it would have said the same darn thing that we'd see in our newspapers today. Why do I say that? Now, one scholar says that um, 
that out of the 3,000 plus years of recorded history, listen to me closely, out of the 3,000 plus years of recorded history that we have on the books, less than 300 of those 3,000 plus years recorded peace. And those weren't even consecutive. Okay? So, so less than 10% of our recorded history records nations at peace. What does that tell you? It tells you that we are not a world that does not know war and tumults. It's easy. It's easy for us to hear of wars, to hear news of new wars taking place and then begin to despair because of it. Or become terrified that the end is near. But what Jesus does here in his own kind of like pastoral wisdom is he instructs his disciples, his followers, not to be terrified, not to live in fear, not to think that the end of the world is is at hand. He's basically saying, hey, it's not the end of the world when you hear these things. You just need to know that it's going to happen. We need to recognize that part of God's total redemptive story of the world is the continuing chaos of war. We can know for sure. We can know this for sure because Jesus is saying it to us in this passage. We can know for sure that Christ reigns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that as He establishes His perfect kingdom, we can keep our eyes focused on Him as the object of our faith, the object of our hope in the midst of the chaos of war. In the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of the chaos of war, we must get our heads into heaven and our eyes focused on Jesus, who is our hope of heaven. You and I have no hope for a heaven where there is no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears, no more hardship, no more sin, no more depression, no more spiritual oppression, no more of any of that. We have no hope for that kind of heaven if our hope is not placed in Christ. He is the object of our hope. Place our hope in Him because He is the hope of heaven. The fourth thing that I notice in this text is the chaos of natural disaster. Verse 11. Think about the chaos of natural disaster for just a minute. Think about tornadoes, tsunamis, earthquakes, floods, mass genocide. Think about entire nations and countries that most of us have probably never even heard of. Kids living in trash heaps and starving because there's not enough food to sustain them as a nation. So-called third world countries. We are one of the wealthiest nations in the world. A friend of mine who helped to plant a church here in town who spent, I think it was somewhere between three and five years living in a tent next to a garbage heap in a third world country so he could minister to families that were living there. And he's told me, he's like, man, when you come back to the States and you do ministry here, you preach the gospel here, and people tell you to soften it up, 
People tell you not to say those things because you might offend someone. People tell you not to preach so long. (laughs) I hear that every once in a while. I think what happens is when you see, when you see the outcome of natural disaster, you, you, you get your head out of the sand, so to speak, and you, and you begin to realize, hey, there's something not right with the world. Jesus says there will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And this imagery that Jesus is invoking here from a historical and grammatical standpoint is simply images and pictures of like fire falling down from heaven. Earth standing still. Earthquakes happening. As God releases his judgment and the entire cosmos falls into complete disrepair. I don't think that what Jesus was talking about here had anything to do with blood moons. He had everything to do quite simply with the topic of natural disaster because that's what he's talking about. Chaos of natural disaster is something that must happen before the end comes and Christ returns. It's simply more evidence for us as we think about this. There is something broken in the world. There's something broken in this world that you and I live in. There's something that's not quite right. There's something that you and I can't fix. It's almost as though the world is like on a collision course towards certain destruction. Like we're headed towards an awful destiny that we have no power or control over. It's a reminder that the world that we live in is irreparably broken because of the effects of sin. We, as a broken people, have no hope in making things right. I think this is why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, But one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you, he says, who are mature think this way. It takes a certain amount of maturity to remain focused on Christ. And his call towards holy, God-honoring living in the midst of the chaos. And especially in the midst of the chaos of natural disaster. It's easier just to fall into like this really erratic theology of date setting, Bible code cracking. It's easier to fall into despair and depression. It's easier to fall into self-medicating behavior. It's easier to fall into outright rebellion, maybe, in the midst of chaos. What Christ calls us to in the Scriptures is to remain steadfastly focused on Him as our Savior because He is our hope of heaven in the midst of the chaos that we see in front of us. 
In the midst of the chaos of natural disaster, we must get our heads in heaven and get our hearts and our eyes focused on Christ, who is our hope of heaven. He is our hope. There is no other hope without Him. Number five, the chaos of persecution. As we wrap this up, verses 12 through 19. Uh, many of you are probably like seven verses. Seven verses in the last point? Buckle your seatbelts, I guess, right? And these final seven verses of text, what Jesus does is he explains to his disciples that they will face the chaos of persecution. And they'll face the chaos of persecution specifically from three groups of people. They'll face it from religious people, secular governments, as well as close friends and relatives. And in the midst of that chaos of persecution, Jesus is simply exhorting his followers and encouraging us to trust the Holy Spirit to help us and to give us an answer for the hope of the gospel which lies within us with gentleness and respect. Because even though some of them and maybe even some of us someday will be put to death, for our faith, the hope of heaven that, that we can cling to is that, is that we will be preserved through fiery trials, as another portion of Scripture says, to endure the chaos of persecution and then come out the other side unbroken in the presence of Christ. That's the thing that I love about the gospel message so much. The thing that I love about the scriptures so much. It's why you see me over here to the worship music freaking out like crazy, right, earlier? Why? Because I know this life is broken and I know this. I know that because my eyes are focused on Christ, I will be taken to a place where all things are not broken anymore. I get stoked about that. I get freaking jacked up about that. More jacked up about that than I do Huskers winning that stupid game. When I'm singing those songs of worship and we start singing about how Christ has overcome sin, how he's overcome death, how he's overcome the grave, how he's overcome all the hopelessness of this world, I am reminded again that all of my hope lies in Christ. And whatever I walked in with tonight that is seeking to hold me back, and listen, whatever you walked in with tonight that is seeking to hold you back from placing your hope in Christ, the message is is this get your head in heaven and your eyes focused on Jesus because he is the essence of perfection he is perfection it's in him that we place our hope this life is broken a life with him is unbroken that's the hope that you and I have it's what we look forward to Jesus says it this way but before all this they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Bear witness. Gospel of Luke. Luke also writes Acts. And in Acts 1.8, he says, go to Jerusalem, 
My spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you go just do a cursory reading of the book of Acts when you go home tonight, here's what you're going to find. The church in Acts didn't have it comfortable. The church in Acts didn't have some cush space. The church in Acts was marginalized, beaten, and persecuted. And you know what happened to them? It freaking exploded like crazy. See, in America, we got spoiled, rotten people. That's what we got. In the book of Acts, you had persecuted, marginalized people. That when they came together and worshiped God and heard the preaching of God's word, they were freaking excited about it. Why? Because their leaders were getting tossed in prison and beaten like crazy with whips and stones. And they were getting set free and being told, don't go preaching in that name again. You know what they were doing? They were walking right back out in the street again of those cities in front of those people who told them to stop preaching that way. And they kept right on preaching some more. Because their hope was not placed here on this earth. Therefore, the chaos of persecution didn't stop them. These guys in the book of Acts, as we look at the early church, were like, hey man, I'm charging the gates of hell with squirt guns and five bucks in my pocket. Who's coming with me? That's what I see taking place in the book of Acts. Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. A common misapplication of this is, oh, you ain't got to read your Bibles. Now the Holy Spirit will give it to you. you ain't got to go to seminary. Holy Spirit will take care of you. Yeah. Context, right? Context. Jesus is in no way saying don't study. He's basically telling hey, you ain't got to worry about how much you've studied. You ain't got to worry about how much you've meditated. What you need to just think about is that my Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Hey, think about the early church, man. These guys did not have their rabbinical robes because they flunked out of rabbi school. They did. They flunked out of seminary. Jesus took these hobnob group of fishermen and um, rabbi school flunkies <laughs> And use them to plant the church. Many times they were taken before governors and leaders, were persecuted, put to death, and God would give them words to say. I think of the Apostle Paul in front of King Agrippa. And Agrippa, and there's this other dude named Festus, which always makes me think of that, uh, that old uh, Western called Gunsmoke. Not the same Festus, obviously. Festus walks in and he's like, Paul, you're crazy. No, I'm not crazy. The Holy Spirit's speaking. And Festus couldn't say anything more. Go read the book of Acts. This passage will come alive in front of you. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or con con contradict. Uh, you will be delivered up even by parents. Think about the closeness of relationship here when it comes to being persecuted. Your own parents might persecute you. Your closest friends may persecute you and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death you will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance you will gain your lives listen if you follow christ if you follow christ then you can expect to face the chaos of persecution from other religious folks from our secular government around us as well as some of your closest relatives and friends 
But you and I can both take heart in these moments in the fact that just like the disciples, the Holy Spirit will give both you and I the courage and the words in the face of the chaos of persecution. He will give us the ability to speak the truth of the gospel wisely and winsomely as you or I suffer for our faith. And as we cling to Christ, who is what? Our hope of salvation. salvation, Hope of heaven, right? In the midst of the chaos of persecution, you and I must get our heads in the heavens and our eyes focused on Christ, who is our hope of heaven. A couple of closing reflection comments for you. Think about these questions. Have you experienced the chaos in the world around us lately? Turn on your news channel. The loss of religious freedom. False messiahs. War. Natural disaster. Persecution. Have you experienced the fear that is involved with thinking about the end of the world? Have you lived in, in the frustration of watching the world around us just crumble the way that it is? Have you faced the uncertainty of discerning the difference between truth and lies? Have you experienced the pain of loss, persecution because of your stand on the truth of the gospel? How, how do we get our heads into heaven? How, how do we get? We, we get that we're, we're supposed to get our heads into heaven, right? We're, we're supposed to get our eyes locked on Christ, who is the hope of heaven. But how do we do that? How do we get our hearts focused on Him? And I think the simple answer is this, that we need to come to terms with the truth that though Christ was murdered at the cross, in the chaos of sin, He rose three days later triumphant and victorious over the chaos of Satan, sin, and the grave. Simply put, you and I, if we are in Christ, we are one with Him. And we keep our heads in heaven, our eyes focused on Him because He is the hope of heaven. And we do this by relishing in the truth that in the midst of the chaos before the end, Christ reigns supremely victorious over all the chaos that you and I see. He reigns. He is king. His kingdom is getting established and to that kingdom there is no end. It is an eternal kingdom. It's unbroken. It's perfect because it's built on Christ alone. If you've trusted in Him, if you've trusted in Christ and His work at the cross and the truth of the, of the empty tomb, and you've been united with Him. You've been united with His power over Satan, sin, and the grave. And you too share in His victory over the chaos that you see around us. Let Jesus' words pastor your soul in these moments. Listen. See that you are not led astray. Do not be terrified. Not a hair of your head will perish.
By your endurance, you will gain your lives. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've trusted in Him, then you can keep your head in heaven and your heart focused on Christ, who has been victorious over the chaos before the end. Let's pray. Father, as our music team comes now to close us in a season of worship and prayer, and as we, um, as we participate in um, the taking of communion together, Lord, I pray that you would do for us just what we see in this text. Each of us, as I said earlier, walks in with varying different degrees of chaos facing us. And what we need most of all is a fresh glimpse and picture of you. You who are our hope. You who are the hope of heaven for us. We need that picture. And so Lord, pray that you would take this word that has been preached and that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds as we engage in communion. As we come to this table of fellowship with you. As we partake together as a community and a family in uh, remembering your broken body and your shed blood on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would do that for us over the next few moments. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. So we'll, we'll engage in communion together. We do this every week at the end of the message. It's a way that we try to point people to Jesus and his work at the cross after preaching. We find that it's a good way of applying the shed blood of Christ and the broken body of Christ to our hearts. If you're here with us and you, you have not yet trusted in Christ, we would just encourage you maybe to refrain from, from engaging in communion um, because it would kind of be like a religious thing with no meaning for you. But it, you could be here right now and this could have happened for you in these moments. Like you could, the Holy Spirit could be speaking to you. You could be saying, you know what? I'm not perfect, which is why I need Christ. And I don't know if I believe everything that you believe. And I don't know if I believe everything that's in the Bible yet. I just know that I'm hopeless without Christ. And I need him to save me and change me. That could be you. If you're in that place, we would invite you to take communion with us. Otherwise, communion is for believers, people who have trusted in Christ. You don't have to be a member of our church. You only have to have trusted in Christ. So if that's you and you're here, then we would invite you to engage in that. There will be two of us at the front here in just a moment. You can use these uh, center aisles and then kind of go back around afterwards and find your place after that. Um, let's participate in communion. There will be a few of us here to pray with you as well. If you'd like to pray, need prayer for any needs that you may have, uh, we just invite you to the front for that. So thanks for letting me preach. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.